Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. The talk today is going to range around a variety of topics in mind-body medicine and self-regulation skills in kids from early ages through adolescence and on. And um, I'm hoping to keep this more clinically oriented and day-to-day relevant um, for us rather than focusing on too much of dry science, but there will be a little bit about some of the research and what we know about um, self-regulation skills and mind-body skills in kids. So I'm going to cover a little bit about some background in pediatric health issues, why an integrative approach and in particular mind-body medicine and self-regulation skills may be helpful. Um, and then cover some specific issues on specific techniques in use in kids um, and uh, particular conditions that we may use them in. And then some reminders about uh, the language we use and its relevance, not only in formal practice of self-regulation skills or learning mind-body skills, but also in the informal way in which we are around or are helpful to kids in a wide variety of contexts. So not just clinically, but also at home. Why focus on kids? Pediatrics at the Osher Center is relatively new. I started here just, I guess, about a year ago, last month. Um, but th- this kind of sums up to me why it's important that we focus on kids' health. Um, their health and safety, their uh, material security, and their education and socialization, their sense of well-being um, are really, truly measures of the society in which we live. Um, As a brief overview, a measure of some of the issues that we deal with currently and what's happened with them in recent time, um, obesity. And a lot of these are things that you're really familiar with in the current um, media environment. But one in six kids between 6 and 19 are overweight. It's a 45% increase in the last 10 years alone. Asthma has become the most prevalent chronic disease affecting kids in the U.S., Um, Allergies now affect about a third of all kids in the U.S. and are one of the main reasons for outpatient visits to pediatric practice. Diabetes affects about one in four to 500 kids, but the major change here is that of kids who are newly diagnosed with diabetes, the percentage with type 2, which used to be called adult onset, has risen from less than 5% to nearly 50% of kids. Um, And cancer, the leading cause of death by disease in children, the age-adjusted annual incidence has actually been increasing. Despite major advances in treatment in cancer and survivability, the incidence actually increasing a bit. Mental health. 20% of children are estimated to have mental disorders, um, uh, at least with some mild functional impairment, uh, much less with more significant functional impairment. And neurodevelopmental disorders are becoming one of the more common conditions that we treat. And Dr. Newmark, as many of you know, is a pediatrician here who specializes in a lot of neurodevelopmental disorders. So how are we doing? And in particular, how are we doing when we ask kids? So this is, this is data that comes from UNICEF when uh, among the percentage of kids at 11, 13, or 15 years of age who rate their health as either fair or poor. And look where we are. Ain't all that good. So what has been our standard response to these medical conditions, for the most part? 
and many of you probably seen this before, but, and this is, it, this is kind of a hackneyed critique of the standard acute care model, and most of you all are pretty familiar with this. And of course, it doesn't fit this stereotype exactly, but the pressures in our system really lead towards the simple solutions to problems, the quick fixes. The easy way to adjust behavior in a large setting of kids. When teachers are swamped with 35 kids in a classroom, they can't address the individual needs of so many kids. So simple solutions become much easier to implement, even when we don't know what the real long-term complications or consequences are. So what if we were to do something different to begin to think outside of the box? <laughs> Sometimes that's what it feels like. But I think in pediatrics, there are a lot of movements to really address this from a very positive framework and a framework of thinking about wellness in kids and the positive aspects of health uh, by focusing on what's right, what works well, what are natural developmental tendencies and skills that we all learn at some point or other and putting some consciousness or awareness on that. And that's where self-regulation and mind-body skills come in. The mind-body medicine is a concept... Um, both physiologically and in practice, in medicine, it's actually been around for quite some time. Um, the practices, a lot of practices in self-regulation skills have been around for decades. They just haven't been an integral part of how we address patient care in the outpatient setting um, with any kind of direct or, uh, or conscious acknowledgement or discussion. The placebo response has gotten a lot of attention. Um, but its utilization is tricky, and, it, and understanding how it can benefit and how it can be utilized is a little tricky, too. Currently, psychoneuroimmunology research, which is um, one of the big areas of research here at, at the Osher Center, is at the cutting edge of understanding about the connection between how the mind, the nervous system, and the brain function in interaction with our immune system and how that affects disease course and wellness. So what are self-regulation skills? These are the skills, um, or is it, they're actually a set, a complex set of mental capacities that help us with our impulse control, emotion control, planning, self-reliance, socially responsible or acceptable behavior, self-guidance of thought and behavior. And um, you know, for those of you who have kids who work with kids, it's pretty easy to think about. You just imagine um, the differences between a two- or four-month-old to whom you respond nearly immediately to almost any upset versus an 18-month-old who, after you've had for a few weeks, you are ready to pull your hair out with the response to everything that they have. Their capacity for regulating their emotional drives isn't there yet. They haven't really learned it. Um, so each of these things are, are, are aspects of normal development that happen in the trajectory of development that, for the most part, we don't really think about, at least not in terms of learning or practicing a self-regulation or mind-body skill. Nevertheless, they are fundamental and key aspects of who we are individually from a personality standpoint or our ability to function um, from simple behavioral adjustment to school readiness and then the ability to cope and manage with stress. So a lot of self-regulation skills kind of include, this is a very broad category, we're going to talk about specifics in a minute, positive self-talk, self-monitoring, uh, enhanced awareness of mind-body connections, 
directed or formal use of mental imagery, and then voluntary modulation of selected physiologic functions, which sounds dry, but we'll talk more about that in a bit. So formal practices that support self-regulation skills. Now, I can draw a bit of a distinction between self-regulation skills and mind-body techniques or practices. Self-regulation skills are the skills that I talked about before, the things that we need in functioning day-to-day that we don't often think about but are part of our day all the time. Um, You can witness, as I did just 10 minutes ago, coming from uh, the exam room, where there was a mom with a four-year-old and an 18-month-old. And the four-year-old has the capacity to sit on a table or in a chair for a while, not get up, look around, maybe ask a question, maybe their capacity to, to withstand it doesn't last so long and they have to poke you with the hand and say, can I ask you something, can I ask you something? And then you, you respond slowly. But the 18-month-old, depending on their temperament, and frequently they are just all over the place. They don't have the capacity to stay in one place because they don't know that they're eventually going to get some aspect of what they want or what they need. They can't do any delayed gratification in a formal sense. Um, So those are the skills and practices we learned. But the mind-body, this is the way I think of it, mind-body techniques or practices, these are formal practices that you can learn from a conscious standpoint, whether they're specifically just mind practices, self-regulation skills, or even the ones that combine mind and body, yoga and tai chi. But they are formal ones that we practice either taught or self-taught or taught in other settings. Um, But there are also many that we already know about, that we already do, that we just don't always think about or we forget that we have at our disposal. Um, We talked a little bit about some of these also. And some of these we may do more and more on our own, yoga and tai chi, but not necessarily think of them as self-regulation or sometimes mind-body skills or practices. So here's an example of what we might expect in terms of the self-regulation capacity of a child who's about ready to enter school. They should be able to wait for their turn. They should be able to resist a desire to grab some object, toy, something they want from somebody else. They should be able to willingly help somebody else with a task persist at a challenging activity for at least some period of time, and actively try to change negative emotions. They can do this internally by these various thought processes, cognitive processes, or delayed gratification techniques. But they're not necessarily something we consciously teach kids. It happens in our teaching, but not necessarily in a, in a, a formal sense. So what are specific self-regulation things that happen at different ages and what might we expect kids to do or infants to do at different ages. In infancy, early on, non-nutritive sucking is one of the most common and effective ways for self-soothing or self-regulation. You give an infant, either use your own finger or a pacifier, some object they can use to suck on, immediately signals and triggers the internal nervous system to settle down and calm down. We do that some later as we talk about with, deep, with our own uh, diaphragmatic deep breathing skills can trigger some of the same internal physiologic responses. Um, sighing. Well, if you've ever noticed this in infants before, in transition from, say, one activity, sometimes they may get a little bit bored with one particular activity. This might be a six-month-old, a nine-month-old, a ten-month-old, and they'll just kind of be doing something, and they'll just go... 
and kind of move on to something else. That's a kind of a self-regulation activity. There's some internal energy that's not, they're not comfortable with, and that helps them shift and move to something else. Physical contact is obviously another one. In toddlers, they have very similar techniques that they do automatically, but they're beginning to be able to learn about rewards, um, the recognition they might get for adjustment of their own emotional responses. These are often very hard things to, to be patient with. And we may talk about this in a minute too, but one of the interesting things in this conversation with this particular parent was not only about, this talk was on my mind, not only about self-regulation in a four-year-old and the differences between that and an 18-month-old, but what happens with an 18-month-old when they are constantly in motion, constantly needing attention, constantly bugging you about something, they challenge the parent's internal self-regulation capacity to deal with what comes up for them. And that's often one of the most difficult things, is to balance that. And then sometimes it's the four-year-old, when you're pulling your hair out over the 18-month-old, and the four-year-old's starting to get on your nerves a little bit, and then you lose your patience with them, forgetting that they sometimes need some of the patients too. These are all normal reactions. There's nothing bad about what's happening in any one of these particular people. It's just that putting some conscious awareness on our capacity to build what's already internally there can make it easier for, on ourselves. And then you begin to model the behavior for kids and you show them about how to do it for yourselves which for these kinds of skills is usually a more effective tool than telling them what to do. And if we have time, we'll get into some of that language a little bit later. So this is a little, just a little bit more, another way of saying some of the same thing about self-regulation skills. Techniques that facilitate a person's own abilities to direct their behavior. In the case of therapeutically, if we're using this medically, for the purpose of symptom control, attaining or maintaining health and wellness and improving functioning or enhancing performance. Um, and you, you'll see that from the breadth of, of things that we can use this for, how that applies. Um, this concept of locus of control is another way of thinking about this, particularly uh, helpful, I think, for, for those of us who are in medicine. Um, as we can shift our understanding about what's happening differently for a child when you're teaching them a skill that they can use for themselves as opposed to something we do to them or for them. There's so much in our standard approach to, to how we are taught as physicians and how we learn is that we are the authority that somebody is coming to as the expert to help them determine what your next steps and what your treatment should be X, Y, and Z and do this. What that does is it it can, not necessarily, but it has the potential from taking away what our internal capacities for adjusting, changing, shifting, and altering one's experience of illness or one's symptoms on your own. Um, so putting some emphasis on what is an external strategy that we do to alter something as opposed to or in conjunction with an internal strategy that you can strengthen. So here are a list of a variety of applications for learning, in a more formal sense, self-regulation skills. And these, these are all various reasons that, depending on the child and the circumstances and the condition, 
including some aspect of a formal um, skill of self-regulation can be really helpful. Some people use it for uh, academic performance as well. But this is where we get into trouble, is where sometimes it's like, well, fix it, right? You want it to be better now. And like three, four weeks ago when I wrenched my back when I was with my family, and I knew, oh, this is going to take a while. This is going to take a while to get back together and get together. But like, I need to get back into yoga. Well, fat lot good that's going to do when you've just wrenched your back. And, you know, it's about... It, it, these, these practices take time and they build an internal sense of a muscle or strength that helps resiliency and it's not something that, that you can just turn to immediately in the, in the condition and acute pain or sometimes really acute on chronic pain is a good example for this sometimes uh, there can be an expectation that learning a mind-body skill is going to really improve one's pain experience well it can but if the skill is used only in the, in, in the moment of pain. It is much less likely to be effective than it is if you build it at other times ahead of time. All right, so let's shift a little bit and talk about some specific techniques that can be used. Some of these things can be done on your own. Some of these um, are going to be much more effective if they are learned um, uh, at the hands of a coach or somebody who's trained in these specific techniques. About feedback. I love this definition. It comes from Tim Colbert, who's a friend of mine um, in Minnesota, who's one of the, the national leaders in integrative medicine. So use of an electronic or electromagnetic equipment to measure and then feedback information about physiologic processes that can then be voluntary, voluntarily changed in a therapeutic direction. I'm going to show you another slide and it'll illustrate it a little bit more in a minute. Um, we have quite a bit of data on the use of biofeedback. Most of it is in adults. Um, there is some in children, but not a lot. Um, a recent review had looked at quite a range of studies and shown that for migraine in particular, there is uh, a modest effect size in, um, found in one large meta-analysis that was stable over longer-term follow-up. Um, and uh, this is, you can find similar effects for uh, a tension headache. Um, but the te specific techniques you might use in biofeedback would be different. Um, just as an example, for tension headache, you might use biofeedback that uses an EMG monitor, picks up muscle tension in the neck, uh, back of the neck or the back, and you begin to learn how to modulate that, the, the, the difference between carrying yourself like this without knowing it and learning how to relax those muscles and carry yourself differently over time. That can have major effects on tension headaches. Migraines, on the other hand, are going to be more temperature-related, and one might learn how to adjust the surface temperature of your hand, which you can do by simple self-regulation techniques using biofeedback. And that, um, translating that to effects to actually reduce migraines have been shown to be effective. Um, it's also been used for asthma, IBS, Raynaud's, chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, and other stress-related conditions. Um, so, for those of you who haven't seen biofeedback before and know what it is, it's usually some sort of computer hooked up with some wires. These are on the muscles on the forehead. You can see the one on our finger that's measuring. It could be measuring heart rate. could be measuring heart rate variability. It could be measuring skin temperature. And it could be measuring skin conductivity or the amount of moisture in the skin. 
goes to a computer. The computer can generate a graph, a picture, a game. That sensor information comes to the computer, which then processes it into that picture, and then you learn to attend to and change those physiologic parameters with practice over time, and kids learn to do this. And they often, with a the computer, they get really curious because they love the idea about being able to change something and understand what's going on inside of them. This is often, it's a good time to illustrate this difference. Um, in kids, you know, biofeedback in a formal sense like this is probably best applicable for kids who are um, late grade school age to early adolescence and adolescence and above. Um, the capacity to maintain some attention and be interested in this. You can use it in younger kids if you have appropriate software uh, to, to use games in particular, and that might help them stay attuned to things. But otherwise, it's harder for them to maintain attention. Now, within that population that you can use it, I, I, this is my, my own personal experience. I have found that, that for individuals who have a really difficult time attending to or noticing physiologic changes without the use of, of anything external. Um, so, for example, they have a hard time learning how to do simple deep breathing skills, understanding how the diaphragm works, belly breathing. And there are a lot of ways to talk about this with kids, but sometimes it's just too difficult for them. They're not able to pay attention to what's happening in their body very well. You try and teach them some diaphragmatic breathing and they keep doing this. <sighs> And you know you're not getting anywhere. Those kids are often really well served with biofeedback because they can see in a computer more concretely what's happening inside their body. And it becomes easier to adjust to that rather than just a voice. HeartMath is a particular, it's a company um, that makes a particular biofeedback um, software that measures heart rate variability. And heart rate variability is really fascinating because we've found... Um, from a lot of their research, but also research outside of this, how much a normal heart rate variability, I'll talk about what that is, correlates with um, levels of health or wellness. A great example is in actually in neonates, not only at the time of delivery, but also in newborns in an ICUs. Um, this is just one area of study that I'm familiar with. Uh, any, anybody who's had a child or has seen images of having a kid knows about the monitors that are used during pregnancy to monitor the heart rate. And what obstetricians are looking for is what they call a normal variability in that heart rate. Heart rate that comes up a little bit, goes down a little bit. Comes up a little bit, comes down a little bit. If that variability disappears and it becomes more steady, that's a warning sign that that infant is under stress. So that... That kind of variability we've known about for a long time, but we hadn't applied that variability to afterbirth. And in the last 10 years or so, there's been a lot more research on heart rate variability in newborns. And what we've learned is that it is an extremely good predictor of illness. And in just recently, in the last two months, um, there's been a multicenter style uh, study that was just published looking at heart rate variability and its predictive capacity for illness in kids and found that it is highly predictive of um, conditions like uh, necrotizing enterocolitis, which is a bad bowel infection problem. And they can get clues from that flattening of heart rate variability about a day before 
other clinical signs show up. So this is an aspect of our internal uh, um, regulation that can show up from this standpoint. Now, in adults, there are specific techniques to learn how to improve one's own heart rate variability, and that's what this biofeedback program is about. It teaches you how to do that. This is one of the studies. This is actually a study before the one I was talking about um, that that kind of prompted these multicenter trials. It looked at the, the what we can tell from uh, variabilities in, in, in heart rate uh, changes in kids, and it, it predicted um, a five- to six-fold increased risk for adverse events in the next day. Okay, how about hypnosis? Now, this one is, can be a real trigger word for a lot of people. Um, the use of a, the practice of self-hypnosis or clinical hypnosis in a medical context has been around for many decades. It was actually fairly common and relatively popular in the 70s and then kind of waned for a couple of decades in its popularity and it's just actually coming back a whole lot more, particularly in pediatrics but also in some adult use. Um, it's, a, it's a technique that's rooted in um, a very interesting kind of development by this guy Anton Mesmer in the 19th century in Europe. And we don't have time to get into the history, but it's kind of fascinating how he did it. But it, it was frightening for, um, and it was, it was also a little bit show at the time, and it was frightening for a lot of people, and it got turned into um, popular entertainment. It also got turned into uh, films. Anybody seen the movie Svengali or know that movie? Anyway, it's one of the classic ones that gave this image of somebody who was hypnotizing somebody with the eyes and controlling them, telling them what to do, and it had all these sexual connotations associated with it. The use of clinical hypnosis has nothing to do with control of anybody. Um, the entire process is in the control of the individual. They're not asleep. They're actually awake for the entire time. Um, and it can be quite effective and useful technique for somebody to learn when they're motivated to make change for something. We'll talk about that in a minute. Do you guys get a chance to read this? I don't need to read the whole thing, do I? In adults, um, there, there, are, there tend to be patterns um, where some adults are more available for the use of, of, of uh, suggestion and hypnosis than others. In kids, they are far more uh, open to exploring their own imagination in the use of suggestion in imagination than our adults. Have any of y'all heard of uh, guided imagery? So guided imagery um, has a couple of different schools of training, and one in particular called interactive guided imagery is actually very similar to clinical hypnosis. They're pretty much the same kinds of practices. But guided imagery in, in, in it's another commonly known text is... Um, the differences that I would highlight between the use of a clinical hypnosis as I was trained in this technique are that it is, tends to be scripted and it tends to be led by somebody who has an idea of what the imagery is you are suggesting to the other person. Whereas the way that this has been taught, the way I've learned this, is that you actually are utilizing what the individual you're working with gives you in terms of material to use that, that is effective for... Uh, relaxation for the images that they choose and the outcomes and the interests, the, the things that they want to change. And it's slightly different than with guided imagery. Kids are really 
accessible to this. If it's something they're interested in changing, it's something that can be really effective. So that uh, give you a little little background on some of the science. This is some of the early studies, um, and this is a paper published in Pediatrics in 1989. It looked at a cohort of kids that were broken up into three different groups. All of them got basic education about how the immune system works, and in particular, antibodies that are in our body to fight infection, and in particular, one called IgA that is in your saliva and your mouth. Um, so there's a kind of non-specific general education about how that immune system works to everybody. And then they were split into three groups. Um, one group it was a control group where they were just given some other basic education. And another group, um, two other groups, both used some basic techniques in um, clinical hypnosis in suggestion. One of those suggestions during that process was a general suggestion for improvement in the immune system um, to fight infections and an increase in immune substances. The other had a very specific suggestion that says to suggest to increase the IgA in the saliva. And they followed these kids out over time collecting samples from the saliva. And a time one is before the intervention. Time two is immediately after the invention, in the intervention, right at the time. And time three was, I don't remember how long later, um, a few hours later. And that one line going up is in the study group that had the suggestion for the increase of the IgA. It's a fascinating study. It hasn't been repeated, which is one of our standards of assessing the, the validity of, of a particular technique, but it really is suggestive. Now, more recently, there's some really interesting data that came out of, um, this came out of Holland um, with some colleagues of mine who did a study looking at mostly teenagers and some adults with chronic abdominal pain, functional abdominal pain, or irritable bowel syndrome in a clinical hypnosis protocol that was individualized to the patient. It wasn't a standard protocol across the board. Um, and they looked at their symptom scores over time. And they, these graphs track um, symptoms pain intensity and pain frequency over a period of time from the start of the intervention, which was about eight weeks, I believe, through follow-up six months after the end of treatment and 12 months after the end of treatment, comparing standard medical treatment versus the use of hypnotherapy and the drop in the pain intensity score and the pain frequency score. And the really interesting piece about this is that they really followed them for a year afterwards and showed continued improvement and maintenance of their improvement. They're repeating this study in another group of kids, and that's ongoing right now. So th this is a slide that I usually use actually in talking with practitioners, with pediatricians or other um, practitioners about the use of language and the use of, of mind-body rules in general with kids and the things that are really important, but they apply to, to all of us when we're thinking about the language we use with kids. If, if we're intending to help any individual, whether it's your own child, um, a student in a classroom, or a patient in a clinic, the connection you have with that individual, their willingness to feel comfortable that you know what they're going through will allow them the comfort to feel like they're in a place where they're ready to actually receive something that can be helpful for them. Um, they also should be motivated to make some sort of change. If there are issues of secondary gain or issues of uh, other conflict and difficulty where this symptom is persisting for other reasons, 
These to most mind-body techniques are not going to work. That conflict needs to be addressed and resolved before you can use these skills. It's not an absolute contraindication. You can use both, but it's important. The kind of language we use is important, and we'll get to that in a minute, too. Focusing on and developing this internal locus of control. And the effectiveness depends on one's own attitude and belief in the technique that you're using. And to be comfortable with it over time and believe that what you're doing is, is effective. Otherwise, it's going to show how much doubt you may have and what's going to happen. Um, so some examples of some phrases that we use all the time that, again, as I was mentioning before, these are not bad phrases. It's not like to, to, to use these with kids in circumstances is not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes they need that to say, no, you need to calm down. But when it comes to helping them learn something to do that on their own, the command nature of this doesn't help them do that. So um, the rest of these slides are mostly just about some of the, the language that we might use with kids um, and how to help in a day-to-day -day activity with them develop some of these self-regulation skills on their own. Normalizing what they're going through. Helping them to know through examples is helpful, whether they're one's own examples of experience or their peers, to know that what their experience is not that unusual. Um, reminding them of what they've already done that they know how to do without even thinking about it. So sometimes when it comes to habits, I might reframe habits. So habits that we think of as bad habits, like thumb sucking, nail biting, hair pulling, um, that get in the way, either socially or functionally, in older kids, are we, we, the habits of the connotation of bad habits. But there are good habits. So reframing these sometimes in that sense can be really helpful for kids. So, you know, school-age kids will, will know how to ride a bike, and I'll usually ask them, well, do, you, do you know how to ride a bike? And they, well, yeah, of course. Uh, cool. When did you learn? Oh, I don't know. I was really young. I don't remember. Uh-huh. Um, did you use training wheels? Yeah, I think so. Well, why? Well, I couldn't balance at first. Right. So you learned... And in this case, depending on what you're trying to get to, sometimes talking about the muscles, your muscles learned how to listen to the bike move, how to listen to your body move, adjust themselves, get your balance straight, so that you could start flying down the street without even thinking about it. And of course, the kids, they love that, and they also get it. And then the point is, is now you do this, right? But you do it without thinking about it. Isn't that what a habit is? Something you do without thinking about it? So the point is just to reframe that there are things that can happen that we can do that are important that we learn that are good and that you can adjust them also with some directed awareness. I think we touched on this a bit earlier already. Some particular types of self-regulation skills at different ages. This includes a few others. Journaling is an interesting one. We wouldn't necessarily think of that as a self-regulation skill. But there's a study in adolescents and school-age kids looking at kids with asthma and with a very general um, controlled study of comparing kids who were given, I believe, I could get this wrong, but I believe that the differences in the control were, were general, keep a journal, and the other was 
write about something specific about things that were um, bothersome to you, um, they may or may not be related to their symptoms. And they compared outcomes. And the, the asthma control, medication need, and exacerbations were significantly fewer in those who kept a slightly more specific directed journal. Um, it's a place where you can, instead of having your emotions or feelings be released in interfering ways, focus them into another way where you can have a spot where you can release them and, and you can become more functional elsewhere. Formal mindfulness training. Are any of you guys familiar with uh, mindfulness meditation practices? So that skill is a capacity that takes a little bit more sustained attention um, with, in, a, in an abstract sense that younger kids have a much harder time with. So um, formal mindfulness meditation is actually being introduced in younger and younger kids in some schools now. And it's being introduced in school-age kids. Um, but in terms of the capacity for sustained awareness in, um, the, in the, the MBSR community or a Vipassana sense of what meditation is, it takes um, a little bit more formal prefrontal cortex capacity to be able to utilize those skills. Um, so I frequently actually don't teach kids mindfulness so much unless they're in the teenage years and they have some interest in it. And sometimes that learning that technique they actually find quite helpful. So what are some inadvertent ways in which we interfere with a child's natural developmental tendency to develop these self-regulation skills? Um, if in a certain circumstance um, that a child is growing up in, they have a limited opportunity for self-soothing. Everything is too chaotic for them to have a moment where they can actually learn that they know how to do this for themselves. Um, if, the, if their caregiver reactivity level, anxiety level, is so high that there's not a space, essentially, for them to be able to see what it's like to, for one to model some self-regulation, that can make it difficult for them to develop that internal tool of their own. Um, there's some other aspects of different dynamics where if there's a caregiver who is more of a rescuer who comes to fix the problem right away, the child doesn't necessarily know how to do it for themselves. Um, a nice example is a toddler who's running, excited, trips, falls down, you know, hits the ground hard, and is stunned. And right in their first direction, stunned. And you can see in their face, you don't know which direction it's going to go. They might scream, they might cry, they might just get up and run. They don't know what direction they're going to go. And they're kind of looking up, like, what do I do? And in that moment, it's an opportunity and you can model this opportunity with them. You can't attend. Often you need to attend to them in a very loving and attentive way right away. But sometimes a response could be, oh, you're good. Come on up. Just the tone sets an expectation that the child can actually just get up and do just fine. It sounds pretty mundane and obvious, but it's that kind of an interaction that enables the development of that self-regulation skill for kids. This can be helpful with kids as they're a little bit older, early school age and older. Talking, if, especially if you're talking about this with them, if you're talking about the difference between our minds, our bodies, or our spirits, um, 
And in this case, there's a couple of the books that I passed around. Tim Colbert's book, Be the Boss of Your Body, talks about body, mind, and spirit. And these definitions come from his book. Um, is, is really helpful. So just talking about the body and what it is in its physical context and sense, talking about the mind as those parts of you that thinks, understands, Im- imagines, remembers, and feels emotions so they can begin to cognitively separate what these things are. And spirit we all define in our own ways frequently. And it's, I, I like the way that Tim and Rebecca do it in their book um, in terms of talking about it specifically, but it's nice to add this piece when we're wor- talking about self-regulation skills for kids because it gives this a space to be about connecting with things that are outside of ourselves, whether it's just our natural environment, um, whether it's other people, um, whether it's something uh, in a more concrete spiritual or religious sense, but something outside of oneself that, that, can, that can help create more of a space than just your own vessel to hold the stresses and things that we have to deal with every day. So here's, this is, I use this slide just specifically as an example for how you might expect one child versus another or maybe the same child in different contexts to react to some particular trauma. So if you imagine both these kids being about the same age, say the same age as the boy on the right, and one of them clearly has been told to go rake the leaves. He's not very happy about it, right? And the other guy is just having a blast, you know, whatever he's imagining himself as. One of these two kids got hit on the arm with a stick or something. Which one of them is going to moan or cry about it the most? The guy with the rake. So, and this is an aspect of... um, you know, talking about our thoughts with kids and helping them learn. You don't necessarily cognitively do with this with kids, but as much as understand from a caregiver perspective where they're coming from and why they might react the way they do and why they have one capacity here. And we're better neurologically in understanding why there's a very different pain response when you're in this mood or distracted sense or in a trance, if you will, because he's in his own created trance, that you just don't notice as much of what else is happening around you. But this kind of a state, you are much more heightened to the other things that are happening. And it's a nice model when we think about chronic pain conditions too, which become cyclic and self-reinforcing, and how our mood and our physical aspects of our condition interplay with each other. All right. We talked a little bit about some of these things. Richard Louv's book is Wandering Around, Last Child in the Woods. Fantastic book. Um, if, if you're interested at all in nature advocacy and outdoor space advocacy, it's a wonderful read. Um, but we, we're no, we know more about this from a scientific standpoint, about how access to and uh, exposure to natural settings, green outdoor settings, can alter neurodevelopmental problems in kids. It can reduce attention-related problems um, and is, is a key aspect of, what, of choices we made broader than just the medical model. So a, a last bit, I'll just use a couple minutes to talk a little bit about some of the word choices in language we do, and then we'll just open this up to questions and we can go outside of this. Um, the words we use 
and this I'm going to talk a little bit more clinically in practice that we use with kids, can have, not necessarily, but can have particularly helpful or unhelpful implications. So, and this can be in an acute setting, say it's a child who's just coming in with a cut, got a little laceration on their finger, and they're scared. They're not certain what's going to happen. They might need stitches, they might not. But using the language of if you come in with them, for example, and say, well, this isn't going to hurt, are they going to believe you? No. But if we use the language of, I wonder how little this is going to bother you. So just the simple shift in that from somebody telling them what's going to happen when they're already scared and they're less likely to believe, to creating a like, I don't know, this might bother you, in which I'm, I'm kind of allowing that it, it, it's okay if it does. But it's also okay if it doesn't, if you don't want it to. Do you want to learn a way so it doesn't have to bother you so much? And some kids are going to be really interested in that, and some are going to be like, no, thanks, don't want it. It's fine. Um, the, this can be helpful um, both clinically for us and in caregivers with kids. Avoiding the use of uh, I. I want you to do this. I need you to do this. Instead, finding ways of like, well, it might be interesting if you did that. I don't know. And again, you know, this isn't universal. There, 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 but this is a shift in language that sometimes can be pretty helpful. Um, and these are all examples of different phrases that we we can use that can facilitate a child's own internal imagination, interest, curiosity in something um, as opposed to dictating what's going to happen. Permissive use of language. Won't it be interesting when that pain goes away? Won't it be interesting, I wonder what will happen and what will be different for you when that headache is gone? Already you're shifting, and you can think of this in a positive psychology framework. You know, you're, su you're suggesting that cognitively there's a different way to thinking about what's happening to you than the way you may be thinking about it now. Feel free to shoot out questions whenever you like. I've got two. One is, does the pediatric department here in integrative medicine uh, plan to do any of their own research? Uh, mm. Or is something in the pipeline? Yeah, there, there is. Well, right now, that you may or may not be aware of already. Are you bringing this up? Or no, I really, I, no, just, not the, the group here at the Osher Center actually has an ongoing study in mindfulness meditation practices with kids um, based at Lowell. Okay. And they're doing a, a comparative study of some mind-body techniques with kids there. Um, there are other places around the country that are doing more study with um, mindfulness-based meditation practices and mindfulness practices with kids in adolescence. There's, um, there's some related to obesity as well. Uh, but that's the only one I know of that's here at UCSF. And my other question is a clinical one. You happen to have a fourth grade patient who uh, is really interested in hypnosis and self-hypnosis and has mm -hmm. issues with, um, I don't know if you call it anxiety or you know a very low threshold for frustration where he says, my body starts, to, it feels so bad when I can't play my piano or do my homework, and, mm -hmm. you know, the hyperventilating and the crying, mm -hmm. and he wants to work on that. Mm -hmm. Can I just do that at home, or would it make more sense to set up 
appointment, and then learn together with you the techniques and bring You could do both. You can experiment with some of the language of reframing things, but if it's not helping, that's a good time to look for some guidance on what are the other options of things that you can do. Um, my first thought about that is, you know, isn't it interesting how our body tells us information we need to know when we're not actually paying attention to it very well? Our body will tell us when there's something upsetting to us going on. That's really interesting. It's helpful information. I wonder what it's trying to tell us. So that last piece is about not solving it for him, not trying to figure out the answer, and cluing, cluing them into the awareness that their body is telling them something, and you might already know what it is. And then, then it might facilitate conversation about it. Are they worried about something? Somebody might say something. They're scared about this. And just that aspect of that communication by itself will frequently give enough reinforcement capacity for them to be able to meet those challenges. You know, when it doesn't, that's a good time to, to look for some further help. And it may be mind, formal mind-body skills. It may be, you know, in, um, it may be that in seeking... Uh, you know, more formally trained clinicians in counseling or psychotherapy is sometimes helpful in those circumstances. It depends on the circumstance. Yeah, Paul. Um, so um, I appreciate what you've said, and I think there's a lot of applicability in um, other contexts, such as in the workplace environment, which is a workplace culture where there is also a lot of anxiety and depression and stress. And, um, opportunities to help people become more effective in self-regulation. So looking at it, sort of thinking about applying it in other settings as well as in pediatrics, and my question is whether you are aware of research that's um, discovering nuances in terms of cultural differences um, of these techniques. I, I'm not aware of research that is looking at that particular question in in trying to keep up with what I can, I haven't seen much, but that's not to say it doesn't exist. It's fascinating to me. So you're presuming that you have a diverse population yourself, yeah. clinically. Have you, have you any intuition or hunches or, or senses of what Well, what happens with, with, in terms of clinical encounters for myself is I'm really interested in what already exists within a family unit, within a community context, and a broader cultural context. Either that's 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 being used within a family, or that a family is aware of and can utilize, and, and maybe aren't at, at some point, and can tap into that. Um, but you know, from and, when, and I'm not sure if this is getting to your question, but when it says you know if it's like, well, here's biofeedback; it's a great tool. But in this cultural context, I'd use it this way, and this one, I'd use it this way. Not necessarily. It just depends on on the, the feedback I get from a family. Because there are going to be some families who, the mention of hypnosis, it doesn't matter how much demystifying I do. They don't want anything to do with it. And that can come from just their own, their own exposure to what that is. It can come from a cultural understanding. It com- and there are a number of cultures that are very against some idea of a mind-body tool where the impression is somebody's controlling somebody else. So, in that sense, biofeedback's a little bit better. It's a computer. You're controlling it. I think it also speaks just to personality differences. Some people are more comfortable using technology and people are more comfortable with ideas like spirit or mind. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Any other questions? So I know this is more of a lecture having to do mind body skills. It's kind of an option with this. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with different um, pediatric acupuncture techniques, such as shomishin and kind of non needle? I'm not. Not, not as a practitioner. Um, as of being familiar with hearing them, yes. And in terms of what our practitioners do here at the Osher Center, I'm not so sure. They do see kids, um, and many of them adjust their techniques depending upon the child. When it comes to acupuncture for me, I've, I've done enough training to know how to use the needles and to know a few points that I can use at demonstrations, and I might use those with kids when I ask about acupuncture as something they may or may not be interested in. And depending on their level of willingness to be curious, I will either show them on myself or their parent, and then either at the same time or later for them so they can experience what it's like. Um, but that's getting a little further for me. So yes, I'm a little bit aware, but not, not a, from my own clinical skill standpoint. Mm -hmm. Have you had successes in getting kids off of, say, SSRIs or stimulants with using these techniques to treat generalized anxiety, generalized anxiety disorder, ADD, OCD? Not by themselves. As a component of a broader uh, approach to thinking about those issues, yes. Um, in, in other words, it's not like substituting um, biofeedback or clinical hypnosis for Ritalin or for your SSSRI. Um, the, and this is where the, the kind of conceptualization of thinking about things from an integrated perspective is pretty helpful. What's the rest of the environment? Um, we have some data to suggest that uh, dietary changes and some supplements may be beneficial. Um, so sometimes, depending on the child, uh, improving or uh, helping some self-regulation skills can be a piece of making changes in other settings. What's happening in school? What kind of school setting are they in? Is the teacher capable of adjusting what happens in the classroom to what their tendencies are or not? How functionally impairing are their symptoms, um, and is a little bit of help in one area enough to facilitate um, them to the point where they don't really need the medication they were on. Um, so it's not quite a one-for-one -one switch, um, but there are certainly times when reducing medication, reducing the number of medications, or trials off of medication become more successful. Great. Thanks very much, everybody. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.